Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. My name is Alex. She was right. Um, It's a pleasure to welcome you if you're new here. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Uh, as we read this text together. We're beginning this season in the church calendar known as Lent, so my hope is this, that you have already intuited some slight differences uh, to the service. There will be more of those that turn up as we go along. Uh, You may have noticed there was no meet and greet sign. If you're an extrovert, you're missing it. If you're an introvert, you're delighted. And so to you introverts, uh, you're welcome. And to you extroverts, wait. Um, It will be back. There, there is this uh, way of doing things different during the season, and one of the things that we'll do every week is someone will come and read from the text, and we'll stand together, and together we'll make a response that goes like this. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And sometimes those words will make sense when placed alongside the text, and sometimes those words will make us go, Really? I don't know, because we are in this book, Jeremiah. So if you have a text that you want to open, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests, at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Verse 13, the word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It is tilting towards us from the north. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. The kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people Because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshipping what their hands have made. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. So, uh, before we get into this book of Jeremiah, let me just say a couple of things. Uh, First, we have a podcast 
that is a lot of fun, even if I say so myself as someone who's on the podcast. It makes Aaron and I smile, so if nothing else, it achieves that. Um, it is live at 11 a.m. on Thursdays. We did not pick a time that worked for it to be live for many people, because most of you should be doing something at 11 o'clock on Thursday morning, but you can listen to it or watch it at any time. And one of the things that's fun for us is to get questions, especially around the sermon. So if you dive into this, one of the things you'll get is some of the the workings of how a sermon is put together, some of the thinking behind it. So we'd love to have you engage. Put the phone, in your contact, phone number in your contacts list, take a picture, uh, and send us questions. Because we're in, moving into this season called Lent, which is designed to provoke some questions and some stirring. So if you've never really understood what Lent is, here's uh, some ways to uh, understand it. This is the church calendar. It begins in December, or late November with Advent, the season that builds us up towards Christmas. That's the first section of the church calendar, and it's all centered around that idea, well, this is God with us. It's Jesus making his grand entry into the world, into our story. And that takes us through to Lent, the season we're just entering now, where we begin to contemplate God for us. It's the things that he has done. And we just sang that song, like what he's done. He has done incredible things. And then as we move beyond Easter into Eastertide and Pentecost, the idea becomes God in us. There's the idea of the Holy Spirit and his empowering. And then finally into ordinary time, the message becomes God through us, us participating with God in this new kingdom that he is creating. And so Lent is a part of that. It is the buildup to Easter. But I'd love to start us this Lent with a question that helpfully understands some of the why of Lent, why I think it's so important. And, and you may have come from a background that's told you, well, Lent isn't good. I was told as a kid, we don't fast for Lent. We don't do Lent. We're Protestants. It was an, a Catholic thing. And maybe that's some of your history. You have some discomfort with it because some of the background in perhaps the Catholic Church. And so I want to unpack why I think it's so valuable. Here's a question for us to contemplate together through this season. When I wake up on Resurrection Sunday morning, how will I be different? What am I preparing for? When I wake up on Resurrection Sunday, this highest day of the Christian calendar, this moment of celebration, this moment of remembrance of resurrection, the moment where, if we're honest, we sing songs like Christ is risen just a little bit differently than we sing them the rest of the year. Like how, how do we get healthily to that point? Because if you're like me, the high points of the Christian calendar, Christmas Day, Easter Sunday, they kind of sneak up on you. Life is busy and you suddenly get there and you're like, wow, we're here and I didn't get to process much at all. Lent is that invitation to process. What I find every year is this. I get out of Easter what I put into Lent. I get out of Easter what I put into Lent. There's something about the journey of Lent that gets me to Resurrection Sunday with a better perspective and just a greater understanding of it. A picture image to maybe help us grasp this. I just got back from Glen Erie with some of the staff. We went away on a retreat and someone said to me, you know, you can do this hike that will give you this great perspective. To be honest, I was working through my own British cynicalness because Glen Erie's a castle and I got there and I was like, 
This isn't a real castle. Like, I, I come from the land of castles. This is like, I have five castles down the road from my front doorstep back in England. Like, this is, this is a new castle. And yet, I, I was amazed by these great red monolithic rocks that they have down there. So someone said to me, you can hike up one of the trails and you can find a point to look over Garden of the Gods, this incredible place that I've never been before. And so I began my hike. I took my few extra Christmas pounds for a walk and we made our way up, up this, I made my way up this, this trail, and I got to the top and looked over the other edge of the edge, and I was greeted by this kind of strange little field, a discarded tractor tire, some old wire, and I thought, this garden of the gods is rubbish. Like, there's, there's nothing here. It's just, it's just not good. And then I turned around and realized I was looking in the wrong direction, and so I looked back the other way, and, and my journey up this trail, this work to get there that was a hike of maybe 35 minutes or so, gave me this incredible vista across the Colorado Springs Valley, and, and for those of you who don't know, apparently that's Garden of the Gods there. It's not the tractor tire on the other side. And so there was something about the hike and what I was rewarded with at the end that is um, connected to this idea of Lent and how it leads us in a healthy way to Resurrection Sunday. We process now. Lent is an invitation into some of the heavier themes, the themes that, if we're honest, we'd like to not talk about. Lent is not life. It's death. Lent is not the presence of God. It's the absence of God, or at least what appears to be the absence of God. If Easter is where God is, Lent, for a moment, is where he isn't, or at least seems not to be. And that makes sense when you think about how life is formed. Because as Barbara Brown Taylor says, new life starts in the dark. Whether it is a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. And so as we as a community prepare for this season of Lent, we step, 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 step towards Resurrection Sunday. So if you're new to Lent, some words for you to, to maybe think about. When you hear Lent, think, fast, lament, and repent. When you hear Lent, think fast, lament, and repent. Three words that aren't awfully popular in the evangelical church in the 21st century, right? We, we don't do fasting well. We're, we're, we're creatures that don't lend ourselves to that. We don't do lament well. We don't have this sense of sorrow and pain that we're wrestling with. At least we don't express it very well. And we don't do repentance well, this idea of turning again towards God that's located in the word repentance. Those are three themes we tend to avoid if you're someone who has tapped into something like the Enneagram, I've often thought that the American church is Enneagram 7. It's the party church. It's the always up church. Everything has to be good. And Lent is an invite into a season where things are not that way. That's not what Lent is about. But in the Eastern Orthodox Church, Lent has two other words that I think are valuable for us in this season too. This is Lent every single year. Fast, lament, and repent. But Lent, according to the Eastern Orthodox Church, is also a season of bright sadness. It's a season of bright 
sadness. It's bright because Resurrection Sunday is at the end of the journey and we know where the journey is going, but it's sad because it allows us to reflect on some of the ways that life is broken, that we are broken, and those different elements that come to play there. A Greek Orthodox priest called Alexander Shamerman said this, Lent is bright sadness, the sadness of my exile. He'd lost his country. Of the waste I have made of my life, the brightness of God's presence and forgiveness, the joy of recovered desire for God, the peace of the recovered home. Lent is bright sadness, and that means Jeremiah the prophet works wonderfully for Lent. Because Jeremiah too is a book of bright sadness. It has these incredible high points, these incredible moments of promise, and it gets down into the trenches of some of our lowest moments as well. It gets into lament and it brings it back to joy, and it does that repeatedly. This book has no solid structure that anybody has been able to find. It feels like it was pieced together by about five different people. It's confusing and hard work to process. And again, isn't that perfect for a journey like Lent? So brace yourselves, my friends because we have an easy week here and then, man, we get to get down to the business of being in Jeremiah. And I have had multiple moments where I've turned to staff people and said, what was I thinking? Like, why did I do this to myself? I, uh, yeah, I've done stupid things before. They've always seemed to work out. Okay, so hopefully this will be one of those. Jeremiah chapter one, verse one to three says this. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. Jeremiah, at the beginning of the story, is a priest. He's part of the privileged class that get to stand before God. Perhaps not in the temple because he's in Benjamin, but he would probably make journeys to the temple. He is part of the in crowd, part of the respected group. He's about to become an outsider from that group because of the words God has given him to speak. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Try and note that name if you can, Josiah, son of Ammon. And through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah. If you've memorized all those names, way to go. Wonderful if you haven't. It's okay. Why are they important? Quite often, if you're like me, I skip over those bits. When I'm reading, I'm like, these are just names that don't seem to matter too much. I may not even know who they are. And yet here, then, they're hugely important. They locate Jeremiah in his context. And what we know already is this. Jeremiah's teaching or preaching or speaking is over about 30 years. And it goes from the time of Josiah, when everything is pretty good, all the way through the time of Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, where things get incredibly bad. Josiah is a good king. We're told in that year, the book of the law was discovered. There is good things happening in the country of Judah. People are turning again towards God. All on the surface, at least, seems to be well and stays well for most of Josiah's reign. In fact, people began to use a word about Josiah that they would later use about Jesus. They began to say that perhaps Josiah is this Messiah figure that we've been waiting for. In this moment, everything in Judah seems to be good, although Jeremiah has a suspicion that it isn't. And then when we get down to Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, well, things have got incredibly bad all the way to this last moment when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. 
This is the moment where it gets to the lowest point, disastrously bad. And Jeremiah will finish his book with this recollection of, in that day, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon walked into Jerusalem and he burnt down the temple. He burnt down all of the important buildings and he took the king, killed his sons in front of him and blinded him so he could no longer see. This book goes all the way down to the lowest point for this group of people while still occasionally giving us these bright moments. I wanted to give you this vague sense of structure, even though, as I say, like people would disagree with this structure. So chapters 1 to 20, and there are 52 of them. It's the longest book in the Bible. It's got more words than any other book. So you're earning your lunch wherever you go. You've earned your donut this morning. Chapters 1 to 20, disaster is coming, is the constant theme. Even though things are good when Josiah is there, disaster is coming. Chapters 20 through 25 are the moment of first defeat, the moment where Jerusalem is conquered and the best of the people, the richest, the most successful, the most powerful, go off into exile in Babylon. Chapters 25 through 45, hope of restoration. How many of you know a verse in Jeremiah? Would you like to raise a hand? I bet there's quite a lot of you. Now you can put your hand down. Hold, hold it up again. I want to see uh, how many of you know a verse in Jeremiah. Put your hand down if it's not 29.11. <laughs> there are a bunch of verses within this section of 25 through 45 that we read and say, yes, that's a great verse. Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. How many of you were given that verse on your wedding day? There's got to be someone like, or how many have had a sibling? Like, this is a verse of joy. This is a verse. When people are on the cusp of like a, a, a beautiful life, we say, God knows the plans he has for you. This is a baptismal verse, a verse that we give at a child's dedication. And yet this verse is written in a letter to exiles in the land of Babylon. This is a verse given to people who have hit the lowest point to give some sense of hope and a future. How about this one? The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people." No longer will they teach their neighbor to say to one another, another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Hopefully you're already getting that sense, that slight flavor of this is bright sadness. Disaster is coming, but there's promises to remember to hold on to. Those three sections is where we'll spend almost all our time over those next six weeks, because just a hint, we don't have time to do a chapter a week like we might do with another book, like 52 weeks in Jeremiah. That's a way to empty a church. Uh, Chapters 36, (laughs) verse 51. The fate of the nations, Jeremiah starts to talk about how God will judge the other nations for their judgment of Israel. And then finally, in chapter 52, he ends on that ultimate low point, the destruction of Israel the temple. So that's some of the flow of the book. Verse 4 to 5, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. 
6 and 8, alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. Like most of the prophets, Jeremiah gets some sense of, you are called. This is what I'm calling you to do. This is the moment where your ministry begins. And like many of them, he has an objection to make. For Moses, it was, I don't speak very well. And God said, it doesn't matter. For Jeremiah, it's, I'm too young. And God says, do not say to me, I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. And this is the little bit we're going to focus on today. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. This is what Jeremiah is called to do. Doesn't it tap into this idea that for 20 chapters, he'll say to them, destruction is coming. And for the next five chapters, he'll sit with them in the midst of destruction happening. And then finally, he'll begin to build back up again. No, there is a hope. There is something to keep working towards, to keep moving towards. There is something to believe. What is his message? Well, at least for the first 20 chapters, I think it can be summarized around these next few verses. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It is tilting towards us from the north. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declared the Lord. The northern kingdoms would be Babylon and some of the surrounding empires, but Babylon is the empire that will come and sweep through this area and, and really obliterate every other kingdom. This is what Jeremiah sees coming, and nobody else sees coming. Everybody else believes life is fine. It will continue as always. Nothing will change. And Jeremiah is the one who sees the cracks in the surface, sees things about to fall apart. And for 20 chapters, he has a message that could be summarized like this. People of Judah who seem to think everything is fine, there is a way to live that seems like life, but it leads to death. There is a way to live that seems like life, and it leads to death. For these people, everything is good. It's fine. Life will continue. And Jeremiah says, no, the cracks are on the surface, and it's only a matter of time. Does that sound like somebody you know or something you've heard before? It should. Jeremiah, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, this is Jesus speaking. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. The horror for Jeremiah is this. You all think everything is fine and nothing is fine. And everybody's continuing like it will just carry on forever. And it won't. It's just a matter of time. There's maybe a reason that when Jesus appeared on the scene, people had suspicions about who he might be. And in Matthew chapter 16, he even asks the question, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jeremiah's words were so hard-hitting, people are still hearing them hundreds of years later. And when Jesus appears on the scene, people ask the question, is this Jeremiah? back again. 
There is a way, that, a way to live that seems like life, but it leads to death. Jeremiah isn't worried about the people that are doing like the live fast, die young type thing. He's, he's not worried about the people that are living like the world's about to end tomorrow. He's not worried about the James Deans of the world. Live fast, die young, leave a good looking corpse. That, that's not the people he's thinking about. He's thinking about the people that are pretending everything is good. That even though everything is broken, they're just continuing like life is normal. The philosopher and martyr, Vyacheslav Gardavsky, said this, we might die earlier than we really do die, before death has become a natural necessity. The real horror lies in just such a premature death, a death after which we go on living for many years. It seems like within all sorts of thinking, from all sorts of people, there is a way to live that seems like you're alive and actually underneath something is missing, something has potentially gone badly wrong. And this appears in all sorts of different streams of thought. The filmmaker Michael Mann in his 2004 film Collateral points this out. There, there is an assassin who has come to Los Angeles and he has a mission to kill five different people. And during the course of that, he takes a taxi driver and forces him to come and drive him around. The taxi driver is the good guy in the story. And his question for Tom Cruise, the bad guy, is, you know, how can you do these things? You're really a, a terrible person, and, and really who I am is the right way to be. And Tom Cruise's response is this. Well, is it really? Now, we might agree on the assassin part, but what he points out about Jamie Foxx's character is this. You think you're alive, but really you might already be dead. He has a dream, Jamie Foxx, to, to start a limousine company. He's going to create this new opportunity for him and himself in the future. He's gonna buy a limousine, he's gonna drive people around and, and life is going to be great and he even has a picture on it and he, of it on his dashboard, Island Limousines. And, and Tom Cruise provokingly starts to ask him some questions in the midst of that. He says to him, well, how much money do you have saved? When are you gonna buy the first car? How are you gonna make this happen? And Jamie Foxx, in a moment of confusion, starts to admit he has no money saved. He's never going to do this. This is just something he keeps telling himself that he's going to do so he can live and survive another day. And in this moment where Jamie Foxx says to him, why, don't you, why haven't you killed me? You've killed all these other people. Tom Cruise's character points back to Jamie Foxx and says, there's no point killing you. You're already dead. You're already dead, you've got this dream, your life is over and all you're doing is keeping yourself going through the same cycles. It's a similar idea to what our friend Gardavsky says here, there's a way to live that feels like life and yet, yet it's already over, it seems. It's provoking, it pushes our buttons because an assassin is telling the good guy, no, you're the one that's dead. It messes with us in that way. C.S. Lewis, the writer, said the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope. Soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Jeremiah comes from a, for, with a message for those that think that they are part of the in crowd and yet everything in society is badly wrong. How do you bring that message to a nation? How do you bring that message to a group of people? How does Jeremiah speak that message out? How do you wake up those who you would say are sleeping how do you wake up those who are spiritually sleeping? How do you wake up a whole society 
that is spiritually, spiritually sleeping. That's Jeremiah's problem in this book. He sees a society that corporately has gone wildly off base and thinks that everything is fine. Now, interesting little tidbit on this, and maybe a little sidetrack. When we think about sin, about wrongdoing, about a society that's bad, we tend as Westerners to think about individuals. We tend to start asking questions about how individual people are behaving. We might even start asking individual questions about how individual people are thinking, what's in their hearts, and that is part of it, yes. But it misses how sin is defined for a lot of the Eastern world, a lot of uh, parts of Africa, a lot of parts of history. It's not always seen as just an individual thing. A great way to understand sin for the rest of history is as a corporate thing. However you feel about a topic like climate change, when you think about something about pollution in the world, well, how does pollution happen? It's loads of people contributing to a corporate problem. It's not just how it affects you individually, it's how it affects the whole world. That's how Jeremiah understands the problem in his time and in his place. Yes, the individuals matter, but his question is, well, what happens when a whole bunch of individuals have gone off track? What happens to society then? For Jeremiah, this isn't just an individual problem of you need to change because you might go to hell one day. No, this is, this is a corporate problem of if we keep acting like this, this is not how God has said to live. And it's a way that seems like life that leads to death. That's a, a great window into understanding Jeremiah and how he speaks. And yet, he is alone in this message because everybody else, prophet and priest alike, well, to Jeremiah, they all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. There is no peace. In Jeremiah's perspective, the cracks have appeared, disaster is coming, and everybody else is asleep. And he's the one trying to wake them up. Jeremiah brings a note of dissonance to a people that have been lulled to sleep by those who say life will continue just as before. He is an urgent, dissonant voice to a sleeping generation. So with that idea, we get to have just a little bit of fun with musical theory to help us really understand Jeremiah over the next six weeks. There is a way in music that you can play certain notes that don't fit together in a normal way. And when you want to describe anything around music, you, of course, turn to the Beatles to help you do it. And so here we go. can hear it. What is the note? 
who picked that note? <laughs> but it's intentional, right? How many of you do, would say that sounds good? <laughs> like it? Couple, no, you can be honest. Like for some people it does. Like after the first service, a few people like, I was waiting for that note and I love that note. But the design of the note is to throw you off. It's supposed to sound harsh. It's supposed to be that word dissonant. It's supposed to catch you off guard. This is how protest works. This is how profits work. How many of you have heard someone talking about something, perhaps on the news, perhaps in an interview, and they believe there is a crisis somewhere, and they're explaining it to you, and you start to say, you sound kind of shrill, or harsh. I don't like what you're saying. And sometimes it's the words and what they're saying. Sometimes it's the tone of voice. But in reality, what they're bringing is dissonance. They're bringing some sense of like, no, this isn't how it should be. And that sounds harsh when it's heard. Almost every prophet in the Old Testament works in this way. They bring a message that it just rattles people's cages. It brings a different sound. It's not peace, peace, when there is no peace. It's not lullaby. It's the opposite of lullaby. It's designed to capture your attention. This is how street art works. If you've seen some of these images, they have a message behind them. They're supposed to tell you something about what's happening here. There's the message here. What is it? You know what it is. It's get off your phone. It's the, the message is you are, your body is being changed by this crazy little Pikachu creature, apparently, uh, who might be on your head, and, and, and just staring at a phone all the time, but it's supposed to wake you up to something. How about this one on a factory in Detroit? I remember when all of this was trees, was the graffiti, and a small child is supposedly creating this graffiti, even though he can't possibly remember when it was all trees, and we'll never know a time when it will be all trees. How about Tiananmen Square in 1989? One student walks in front of a military parade and stands in front of a tank, stopping the whole, com the whole uh, military parade from happening. The message is supposed to be, well, what happens if more than one person does this? If this is one person's actions, what if everyone started to stand up? We see this concept in song lyrics. This is Rage Against the Machine. I'll give you a dose, but it will never come close to the rage built up inside of me. Fist in the air in the land of hypocrisy. Wake up, wake up, wake up. I would suggest Jeremiah could have written those words. There are people living like life will continue as it always has. There are people who are supposed to be warning them, who are ignoring all of the warning signs, and Jeremiah is the one who's like, guys, you've got to wake up. He's the one playing the dissonant note on the piano. He's the one drawing the street art. He is a guerrilla theater street protester thrown back a few thousand years. This is the message he comes to bring. And as we work through six weeks, what we'll hear every week is he'll take an idea, a concept, a picture that is evocative. One week it's birds in cages. Another week it's fountains that have been replaced by leaking cisterns. He'll pick these images up and every single one of them has a message for you and I. And we don't need to know them all now to begin to ask this question individually, as a community, and as a society. How is God calling us to awaken? Lent, in Dutch, is simply the word spring. It's this moment of 
towards Easter that leads from winter into spring of new life emerging. And we're invited to ask that same question. How, in the midst of our winter, might new life begin to emerge? And just like Jeremiah's bright sadness, this message can be harsh, but it also provides grace. Paul phrases it like this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is Lent, and this is what we're invited to. Let's pray, and I'm going to invite Aaron to come and lead us in a contemplative song. We're going to sit for a few moments. I'm going to invite you to imagine that this is a sitting on a bench. You're about to begin a journey. It's a journey with God up a mountain to see the beautiful vista that is Easter and Resurrection Sunday. And in this moment, you're invited to bring, and I'm invited to bring, all our tiredness, our exhaustion, our apathy, our uncertainty. We're invited to bring the lament, our sadness, that would make it seem that the world could never be bright again. We're invited to bring our sin, and our failure. We're invited to limp towards the God of the universe. We're invited to begin a journey towards Easter that ends with the bright light of resurrection. I get out of Easter what I put into Lent. After we've heard the song, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna lead us in a time of confession. I'm going to give you some practices to take home. Jesus, as we sit and ponder the journey in front of us, would you speak to us? Speak to us in our doubts, in our fears, in our anger, in our hurt, in our resentment, our sense that the world isn't all it's supposed to be. coming weeks you'll speak to all of us individually in different ways but now as a community would you give us strength to begin the journey amen if god is working in your life through this ministry join us by partnering with us you can give online at southfellowship.org/give and thanks for listening we hope you have a great rest of your day